Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. I read a headline on a piece online today, and I'll be honest, I don't really understand what it means. And I read the story and I'm still struggling, but I'll tell you when I read this, And when you think of what happened to the bank in the States that failed just a few weeks ago and other banks that were then around the world in trouble, I read this headline and I thought, this doesn't sound good. Here's the headline. Here's why investors are betting $3.7 billion against Toronto Dominion Bank, making it the world's most shorted bank. Uh, I Again, I'm not an expert on this, but that doesn't sound ideal because we like to believe our banks are absolutely above all this stuff. Eric Cam is Associate Professor and Director of the International Economics and Finance Undergraduate Program at Toronto Metropolitan University. Thanks for taking some time today. Pleasure is always mine. So explain this, because I, I'm not sure that this means Toronto Dominion Bank is in trouble, but if it's the world's most shorted bank, that doesn't sound like a positive. Well, it's a bit of a long corporate finance story. So let's step back for a second. By the way, the long answer to your question is they're not in trouble. So for experienced traders, very sophisticated investors, this isn't for the weak of heart. Short selling can provide a real opportunity to capitalize on falling markets. So what does it actually mean? When you go short or sell short, whatever the term is of the day, you expect a stock price to fall. So you borrow the stock from your broker's inventory. You say, I'd like to borrow that stock. I'm going to purchase that stock, but I'm not gonna purchase it today. The, The shares are then sold and the proceeds credited to your account. Now, at some point, ideally, when the value has decreased considerably, you buy it back or you cover the same amount of shares and give it back to your broker. And if the stock has fallen considerably, you make a profit. If it has increased, you lose money. So it is very much a high stakes game. And the pros of short selling are the same as the cons of short selling. It's very risky and things can literally change by the minute. So what you're hearing now is that Investors think that the Toronto Dominion Bank or a majority of its shares are overvalued. So they're telling their brokers, let's go short on TD. I'll take it, but I'm not paying for it. And so they're going to say, I'm going to play the wait and see game. And hopefully if those shares have fallen, which many bank shares have since the panic in the States, those investors are going to win. But two things, there's no guarantee they're going to fall. So there's no guarantee those investors are going to win. And as I said before, it's not a reflection really of the strength of TD Bank. It is just a reflection that stock prices are volatile and right now a little bit more volatile since the SVP crisis. And I use that term in quotes. Okay. So if it's not a reflection of the strength of the bank, any company whose share falls is a reflection of the at least a perception of the strength of that company. How can we separate those two? You can't. And that's a really good point. It's all about perception. It's all about perception because as you and I discussed last time, what is the cause of every single bank run in history, including the one that started the Great Depression? Panic. But if you've noticed, there's not a lot of panic in this country. We don't have a lot of banks. They're fairly highly regulated and they are fairly liquid. And we have a central bank that makes sure that liquidity would be provided if and when it needed it. That's why Canada hasn't faced one of these serious banking crises like many countries 
because we have a central bank that understands that as long as you use cash, and I hate to use this term, like a lubricant, the system is fine. And so as long as they inject enough cash into the system, there is no fear of our banks failing. So is this a, a wonderful commentary for TD? No, no company wants to see its shares go down. But is it a reflection of the worth of TD, the billions and billions of dollars it is worth? No. And I looked it up and this short selling is about 3% of its shares right now. And so that tells me that there's 97% of shares that people are not playing with this and have no question about the stability. So I hate to call it much ado about nothing, but it's much ado about nothing catastrophic. Okay, and, and again though, when shares go down generally, uh, that can also lead to cascade a cascading effect. It can pick up steam if people see, oh, it's going down, I'm gonna sell too. I wanna get out before I lose money. But does that get, um, is it different if we're doing this as a short situation? Because as soon as they go down a bit, someone's already waiting to buy them up again, as opposed to allowing them just to continue to roll downhill. Well, yes, and that's right. And so you hate to use the term that, you know, millionaires become more millionaires, but that's really what you're seeing here is that you're seeing a bunch of investors just trying to capitalize on the market. You know you buy low and sell high. Well, this is kind of like turning that upside down for investors. But again, they're playing the high stakes game, not really Toronto Dominion Bank, because Toronto Dominion Bank is invested in and invests out of so many different companies and investments and bonds and shares. It is so marginal, so small an exposure to the market that frankly, even if it crashed, what you would see is a lot of investors losing a lot of money. Now, the bank doesn't want to see that happen. But if, if if anybody out there is concerned that they should run over to the Toronto Dominion Bank and withdraw their money, I can tell them with certainty, don't get off the couch. Okay, one more thing on this, though, and that is that even if you are not someone who is invested or has your money in TD, so you're not necessarily worried about a situation like in the States where your money is gone, there are many, many, many people who through their RRSPs or retirement investments or whatever else have shares in banks. Does this indicate that if suddenly investors are looking at Canadian banks to make them more volatile, that there's a chance that your retirement stuff is going to be more volatile? If, well, yeah, I mean, if you're highly exposed in your RSP or your TFSA or things like that, there's a chance that you would lose money. And again, I, I don't want to make it sound too rosy. It's not the greatest story in the world. But again, most people in their portfolios are highly diversified. They don't just hold one thing, which is why at the end of the day, investors do that, people do that, banks do that, and businesses do that, because it really is that, that large diversification. And Canadians have on mass a huge diversification in their portfolios that they don't tend to allow themselves such massive percentage-wise exposure to one thing that it'll be catastrophic. Mm. No, it won't be good. And like anytime there's a decrease in anything, it may take time to bounce back. But investors play the long game. They have to. So I don't see, again, I, it may cause a short-term decrease in people's portfolios and their valuations, but everything comes back everything bounces back. And we know, Scott, the worst thing you can do is to panic and sell. Sure. Because that's that's what, you know, it's like in the housing market when it dips. Well, you know what you don't do when it dips? Don't sell your house. 
And this is the same thing in terms of investing. If there's a dip in your portfolio, stay strong. Don't read the newspaper tomorrow and rest assured that this too shall pass. Okay, last thing we got to run. And I should have asked this right off the top. I realize this is the most obvious question that I kind of left out here. Canadian banks have traditionally been very, very, very stable. Why are the investors looking at TD and seeing an opportunity here or an expectation that the shares are going to drop? What is it about TD that people are looking at them now as a little bit different from maybe some of the other Canadian banks? Well, that's an interesting question. And it takes a little bit of research, which I did this morning after you reached out. And TD happened to be slightly disproportionately invested in things like the SVB. And they have been a little bit more exposed than some of the other Canadian banks into the banks that experienced bank runs, not only in the United States, but around the world. So they've seen a portion of their portfolios dropping because they are, in a sense, um, on the rebound from what's happened in the banking system as a whole. We know there's been some instability and some infragility with the banking system across the world. And TD, compared to the other Canadian banks, was disproportionately exposed. So people, investors are really not stupid. And they go, well, who was the most, uh, and I use again the term loosely because it wasn't tragic, but who was the most affected by Canadian banks in the SVB crisis and in some of the Latin American crises, and it happened to be Toronto Dominion. So as people always do, as investors always do, they followed the money right back to TD Bank and said, let's keep an eye on these shares. And then lo and behold, look at that, people are shorting. So it's a generalized feeling that right now TD is on a little bit more shaky ground than the other Canadian banks. But again, caution, do not run out and pull all of your money out of your RSP or your TFSA. Toronto Dominion Bank is fine. That is Eric Cam, uh, Associate Professor at Toronto Metropolitan University. Thank you, as always, for the time. Happy Passover. Thank you very much. My pleasure. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let me read you a few headlines, just the headlines of some stories from the last little while. Headline, new study links wine to better cognitive function in the elderly. Headline, Canada says no alcohol is the only risk-free option. Headline, is wine the health health, the heart healthiest alcoholic beverage? Headline, moderate drinking has no health benefits and previous studies that suggested otherwise were flawed. Headline, don't just stick to the Malbec. Top nutrition scientist says you should drink many red wine varieties because it's good for your gut. Headline, Health Canada recommends limiting alcohol to just two drinks per week. Headline, red wine's potential benefits for cardiovascular health. Headline, study, no, a glass of wine is not good for your heart. (laughs) Headline, a glass of wine or beer per day is fine for your health, says new study. Martin Gabala is a professor of kinesiology at McMaster. He is also a researcher. I don't know, his, his, his expertise is not in wine, but help me out here, not with wine. If I am a, just an average person, and thanks for joining us today, if I'm just an average person who's reading stuff going, oh, the studies are telling me whatever, how in the world do I figure out what I'm supposed to follow? Yeah, thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me. It, I, I, I think number one is be skeptical, right? You want to check the source. Uh, probably you have to do some homework a little bit on your own. Be a critical consumer of the news. I, I, I will tell my students, uh, you know, sometimes we're trying to explain, for example, the difference between a single scientific study 
and what sort of the hierarchy of evidence would suggest. And sort of the best evidence is something referred to as systematic reviews and meta-analyses. And these are just the findings of a whole bunch of studies put together. So maybe think of it like an individual brick versus what a house looks like when you put all of the bricks together. And the individual bricks can often look quite different, but after a while, if you take a step back and you put the various bricks together, you get a better sense. And But I appreciate that's very, very challenging for people to interpret on their own, especially when things are boiled down to a headline or a tweet or something like that. Well, and especially when it's an ongoing thing. I mean, look, I, I don't know how many studies there are on, let's pick one, the health benefits of cauliflower. I mean, I, I'm sure someone's done a health study on that one, but it's not something you see pop up all the time. So you might see it and read it and say, okay, there you go. But this seems like this or coffee is another one that we get a lot of or, or red meat. We get these studies back and forth and back and forth and back and forth that seem to counteract each other. No, you're right. And, and you, let, you, let me emphasize, I, I'm not a wine expert. I'm not an alcohol research uh, expert by any means. But, you know, my prism has been exercise and physical activity. But I think you can apply the same lens. You know, and I'm constantly asked, what intensity should I do? You know, how long? How much? Are the physical activity guidelines changing? Uh, why? You know, why are they different between different countries and things like that? And I, I think it comes down to, number one, what was the outcome that was being looked at? You know, because we'll hear... Coffee is good. Coffee is bad. Well, what exactly were they looking at? What was the outcome in that study? Was it your blood sugar control or your blood pressure? How much coffee are we talking about? You know, one or two cups versus a, a huge dose of coffee. So regrettably, the, 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 the details really matter. And again, that's what's lost often when we hear these sound bites or these just the, the headlines. And, you know, it, it, I don't think there's an easy answer Coming back to reading a variety of sources, you know, these common things that we would recommend to people do just to be a critical consumer of the news. Don't live in an echo chamber and ideally get get a variety of sources. And so if, if you're hearing some messaging that you know, largely is consistent and, I'll, you know, again, I'll use our physical activity guidelines. You could use Canada's food guidelines as another example. Really, those haven't changed that much over the years. And it's because the science that are generally supporting them is pretty solid, even though, uh, you know, specific foods may change a little bit or sort of come in and out of mm. flavor, just like certain exercise or physical activity fads may come in and out. All right. So let's go to uh, what you're talking about with uh, use. I mean, we can use research, whatever we want. Let's use research in physical activity because that's your more your expertise. The, I've seen a bunch of videos that pop up on social media saying, you know what, if you want to lose weight, don't run. Cardio is not going to make you lose weight. It's all got to be weight training with a tiny bit of cardio. Then you see other ones that say, oh, you know, a little weight training, but mostly cardio is the way to do it. As a researcher who's working on one or two of these, when you see another study that maybe flies in the face of what you are researching, does it drive you insane when you realize that now you're going to have to not just present your work, but also undo something that someone else has brought out in front of the public? Yeah, certainly you cringe a little bit. And of course, you know, we all have our biases of, of, of course, but I, I think, you know, you go back to the evidence and the best you can do in those situations is present the other side of the case. Uh, you know, and I've sort of faced this myself in trying to translate our messaging around intense exercise. And, you know, scientific studies are often dull and boring and very detailed. 
And how do you boil that message down, still keep the, the accuracy, but try and convey it in a, in a more compelling manner? And this is the, the challenge of science communication. And so I think you have to give up some of the precise details and just get comfortable with the, with the general messaging. But you're right. It's, it's challenging, of course, when you see, again, a headline or, you know, just a few minutes a week to fitness and the pounds are going to melt away. (laughs) And sometimes you all sort of get tarred with the same brush. You know, we're, we've been accused of this sometimes in our interval training research. Well, you said this, or the interval training research said this. And it's like, well, actually we, we haven't said that we're trying to give a fairly balanced view, but you know, back to the key point here, it's, it's just challenging. And it, I think it takes some, some work on both sides. The scientists have to get better at communicating the science in a compelling manner. And folks on the other end, I think have to take some responsibility and not just taking things they see or read at face value, check the source, right? And, and is this just based on a YouTube video or a personal antidote or are there randomized controlled trials that might be supporting what's being said? You are no different than anyone else. I'm sure that you will see a story that crosses the, your screen or whatever about a study of something or a poll of something or a scientific journal of something. And it may be opposite to what you had heard before. Do you even read these anymore? Or do you look at them and just go, yeah, okay, whatever. I mean, I got to use a little bit of common sense here. You know, drinking a gallon of whiskey a night is probably not good for me, but having a tiny little bit of a wine every day is probably not going to kill. I mean, do you, how much does common sense just at some point come into this? Yeah, I think the old adage of if it sounds too good to be true, that really still holds, right? So again, come back to this idea, be skeptical. You know, as a scientist in seeing some of these, yes, some you just completely dismiss uh, out of hand because it's just frankly ridiculous. But again, as I often tell my students, you know, in first year, they often learn that everything is very clear, you know, black and white. This either works or it doesn't. And then as they sort of move through our program, everything sort gets sort of gray. And, you know, the reality of science is there's really any absolute truth. Evidence will sort of stack up on either side. And after a while, we interpret it but that doesn't mean that all of the studies say the same thing. And that's really, I think, the challenge of science and also just communicating to the public. This is how the scientific process works. You know, I, I certainly don't want to wade into the COVID debate, but at the start, don't wear oh, masks. Yeah. And then after oh, a yeah. while, wear masks. And, you know, science I, I really suffered from that a bit. But I, I, I think it was, you know, the, the science is evolving here and we're trying to give the best answers we can in the moment. We have to accept that sometimes the answers are unsatisfying and sometimes the evidence is going to change and and really demand that a long-held theory or belief is actually a bit shaky and and now we have better evidence uh, in support of a position. And that's that's just the way it is. Mm, That is McMaster uh, Kinesiology Professor Martin Gabal. Really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Thank you. Have a great night. It is, uh, it is terribly confusing though. As I say, I was I, actually having a little fun gathering. All you got to do is type in wine and health and study. And it is amazing how many wine health studies, and that's just one of them. You can do the same for chicken or red meat, or there's ones for lettuce. There's ones for coffee. As I said, there's ones for, uh, I mean, there's a few things that there's pretty consistent messaging on. You know, I haven't seen... Too many studies in the last 50 years that have said, you know, on second thought, cigarettes are really good for you. I mean, I haven't seen that one yet. 
give it time. Some, someone will probably come out with something. Now, maybe sponsored by the cigarette industry, but nonetheless, that, that's another issue about who sponsors these studies. But it is just so confusing. And this is all because today there was this latest one that came out that said, oh, you know, um, yeah, what we, you know, all those other ones that you read about, yeah, ignore it. It's fine. Which guarantees means next week another study is going to come out that says, oh yeah, remember what you read last week? Wrong. Even a drop of alcohol on your tongue and you will be dead within an hour. Good luck trying to figure it out. I th- common sense. Do what you're going to do. No soup for you. <laughs> no soup for you. Exactly. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Tomorrow, as you... I'm sure no, especially if you are any kind of golf fan or Canadian sports historian. Uh, tomorrow is the beginning of the Masters Tournament down in Augusta, Georgia. And this is a special year for Canadian golf fans for a number of reasons. But the biggest, of course, is this is the 20, believe it or not, the 20th anniversary of Mike Weir's Masters win. I cannot believe 20 years has passed. Adam Stanley is uh, is down in Augusta, joining us right now from the palatial, majestic, $60 million, <laughs> most beautiful press building in the world on the grounds of Augusta National. How are you? I'm well, for all those reasons that you just said, I'm doing very, very well. It's also <laughs> yeah. going to be like 30 degrees Celsius this afternoon. And That's the, not... uh, uh, the azaleas are in full bloom. Uh, and I've had two pimento cheese sandwiches so far. I was going to ask no... you. <laughs> I have not yet had a Georgia peach ice cream sandwich yet, but I was saving it for this afternoon because I saw the forecast and it's going to hit different in the, in the uh, Wednesday afternoon sunshine. So that's, that's my plan. Okay. So here's the thing Uh, for those who don't know, everybody hears about the pimento cheese sandwiches. And I think people have sort of an idea that it's a slice of cheese with pimento. Explain the pimento (laughs) cheese sandwich because a lot of people see these for the first time and go, what? Yeah, yeah. So what 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 do they call it down here? Southern caviar, I think, is what they uh, <laughs> what they call it. So yeah, it's um it's cream cheese and it's cheddar cheese shredded and it's uh, mayonnaise and it's pimentos like a uh, hot jar of hot peppers and it's mixed up and it's spread over uh, two slices of Wonder Bread and um, it's put in a bag and they charge a dollar fifty for it and life goes on. And, it, it, and it's pretty it's pretty darn good. It is actually good, which is surprising because, again, when you look at it, it looks like if cottage cheese and egg salad yeah. had a baby, that's what you're eating. And, and, and dyed it orange. Yeah, exactly. And dyed it orange. And I, I got to say, like some people who own dogs may think, I've seen that before on the on the floor, <laughs> but it tastes way different. It's, it's actually quite delicious. So um, yeah. anyway, there we go. So are, by the, are, you, are you one of those guys who is, I mean, we hear it all the time from people. Are, are you poetic about Augusta or is this, you know, a fantastic golf tournament, but it's it's a golf tournament? Or, or are you in that other category that, you know, you sort of get lost in it a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a great question because I have not been here since 2017, but I got here and I just thought, wow, everything's the same. But I think that's part of the nostalgic charm of this place is like, 
everything's the same, but there's also nothing like it in the world. So, you know, as, as a press person here at Augusta, they treat you pretty darn well, uh, which is great, which makes my experience arguably, you know, much different than, than a patron. But if a patron comes here, if, if a Canadian decides to, to enter the lottery and they win the lottery and they get a ticket or they have the opportunity to buy a ticket and they come down here and it may be their only time, then yeah, you're going to experience in 2024 and beyond exactly the same stuff that anyone experienced in 2000 or 1990 or 1980. And that's what I think makes this place so special. And, and that, you know, is how I think I, I, I felt when I walked into the place, you know, this year is like, wow, nothing's, nothing's really changed, but it's an honor to be back. It's so exciting to be covering this event, you know, from a Canadian perspective for, for a number of reasons. And, and yeah, I mean, as a Canadian, this, this event has always marked, you know, the start of spring and, and this event has always been the one that you, you know, tuck into and realize like, oh, winter is finally over. So there's plenty of reasons why, you know, I'm, I, I would say I, I wax poetic about this mm. particular tournament and having a Canadian, you know, having been a champion here too, just makes it that much more special too. Is there a more difficult ticket to get? I know you call we call them patrons, but for patrons, is there a more <laughs> difficult ticket in sports to get? I don't know that there is. I, I, you know, I mean, I don't think so. Like, I mean, I, forever, if you want to go to the Super Bowl, you just find the money and you buy a ticket yeah. to the Super Bowl. Like, you can just do that, right? If you want to go to Wimbledon, you can just, maybe Wimbledon is another one. I don't actually know how that works. But yeah, if you want to go to quite literally any other event in the in sport, you could you can find a ticket. Now, it's kind of the same here, although it's not supposed to be. Like, if you just drive down here, you can find someone selling a ticket on the street and, and you could walk right in. Um, but if you want to buy a legitimate ticket, to come and watch the masters um yeah it's it's pretty hard <laughs> it's pretty hard to the the time that i was down there uh and uh it was a few years ago there was a woman who was standing beside me on the 18th green on the last as the last group came up and we got chatting and it's a very long story i won't give it she had been to the hospital two nights before or three nights before when she arrived in georgia to have her appendix out and had decided I'm crawling out of my hospital bed in order to get back there and be able to see this. I was kind of stunned that, uh, that that was the case. So this, uh, this tournament, as, as we said, Mike, Weir, I, is it as stunning to you as it is to me that it's been 20 years since he won? It, it seems impossible that it's been that long. Yeah. I mean, 20 years ago, I was, you know, a, a teenager and, and I knew exactly where I was when he won and exactly what happened. And, you know, now I'm, almost 35 and I have a kid of my own and I'm here covering the 20th anniversary of his win. It's, it is pretty jarring that that time has moved on that fast. And I mean, Mike uh, has always stayed in good shape. He's obviously had a bunch of down years, but you know, since he turned 50 and got onto the champions tour, he's, you know, found his form again, he's won out there. And, um, you know, he made the cut at the masters a couple of years ago as well, which is great. And, um, he spent seven hours on the driving range on Monday trying to dial in a couple of things. Like he uses four wedges on the champions tour. He obviously won't need all those this week. He needed longer clubs. He needed more hybrids. So yeah, he spent seven hours just grinding, trying to find, you know, the right fit for his bag for this week. And it's like, dude, you're 52 years old. You won this tournament. You don't really need to be grinding for seven hours on the practice range to try to find yeah. something that's going to fit your bag this week. But, you know, he is. And and obviously, um, you know, the, the reason why we have three other Canadians in this field is probably because of Mike Weir's win 20 years ago. Does, I mean, this is a really hard question because I know these guys, you know, any any athlete, any elite athlete always believes they can win. But when you spend seven hours on the driving range, does Mike Weir... <laughs> really believe that he's going to contend here that is what i've been told yeah and, and i think like all the power to him 
if, if that's what he feels, if that's what he wants, then, you know, he's going to go out and he's going to see what happens and, and life will go on. But, um, if that's, if that's what he has in terms of, you know, belief and, and attitude this week, then you go right ahead, Mike, you spend mm. seven hours on the driving range. Uh, I mean, up here, certainly, I think most of the people in Hamilton, our eyes are going to be following what Mackenzie Hughes is doing. I mean, there's so many storylines, but Mackenzie Hughes certainly is going to be one of those. He has made the cut, his last two Masters, not near the top, though. And yet there are moments, and we've seen this over his career, that sometimes out of the blue at the U.S. Open or other places, he will all of a sudden put everything together and be right there. What what's the chances? Because his season right now has been kind of up and down. What's the chances that somehow Mac is able to put something together here? Yeah, I mean, a little up and down, but uh, he had a fabulous week at the match play a couple of weeks ago. So, yes. you know, he's, he's coming in with some form. Uh, he obviously put in a lot of work uh, with some of that speed training to try to get distance this year. Um, you know, again, you talk about kind of Cinderella storytelling. Uh, Mike Weir won the Masters in his fourth attempt. This will be Mackenzie Hughes' fourth attempt at the uh, at the Masters. Um, a couple of people are, are picking him as kind of an ultra long shot this week. I think his odds at last peep were like 350 to one or something like that. So, I mean, for, for people that may be interested in that sort of shekel sprinkling, <laughs> it, it may not be, may not be such a terrible idea to do, uh, to do just that. Um, you know, I think Mackenzie, uh, certainly when he was here for the first time, when you were here, um, perhaps somewhat overwhelmed by the it was rough of it, it all. Was rough. Yeah. He, you know, missed the cut, did not play that great, but you know, over, over the last couple of times that he has been back, he's very much treated his, preparatory work um you know like a normal tournament he played you know nine holes here nine holes there he's going to play the par three with his kids uh, kids obviously plural now he's got three of them um and i think he's just going to say you know this is my week this is my prep i'm going to have my practice game with mike weir i'm going to learn a few things and then i'm just going to go and i'm going to take advantage of of you know my own knowledge of this golf course so i think combining the comfort level of of him having been here a bunch of times before along with some good prep uh, and also some you know some changes over the last six months or so uh finding the pga tours winner circle again uh, i think there's a lot of good signs for and, and, for mackenzie hughes and the thing about it is that he now after that first year he played with steve stricker and louis Oosthuizen in that first year for the first two rounds and the conditions were probably as wild as some of those guys that they've ever seen with winds that were going in every different direction and howling i i mean the one good thing for mackenzie is he's now seen it about as rough and as bad yeah. as you possibly could anything else is only going to be easier and not that the Masters or Augusta National is ever easy, but um, all right. So speaking of Louis Oosthuizen, let me get to this other one, because I think this may be forget, not forget, but I mean, Mike Weir is a great story. Tiger Woods practice rounds. I mean, unbelievable galleries for Tiger Woods. There's lots of stories. I don't know that there is any story more compelling this week than the live tour guys coming back here and having to play. And what's the what's the reception been for some of these guys, because I'm not I mean, I get the sense that they're seen as villains, but I don't know if the yeah. fans or the patrons <laughs> see them that way or if it's just the perception. How, how is it? How is this working for them? Yeah, I mean, I think there there's certainly some I'm not going to use the word animosity, but I think that there's just some drama that is bubbling under the surface a little bit. But I think that it's more so the people who are not really friends are most certainly not friends right now. But the people who were 
cordial and they were acquaintances and they were totally fine before are still totally fine. Rory McIlroy and Brooks Kepka played a practice round together yesterday, for example. Mm. Um, so Cam Smith, he, he was very concerned about, you know, how things were going to go. We haven't seen the guys in eight months or whatever it is, uh, but he got, you know, a lot of hugs and handshakes and, and Cam Smith is, you know, probably one of the most chill guys out here on the, uh, I was going to say the PGA tour. Certainly he's not on the PGA tour anymore, but mm. uh, in the professional golfing world. So, um, and yeah, how about I mean, Phil think, Mickelson and Patrick Reed? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> is there people are not really reaching out to people like Patrick Reed. I think Phil people people are happy to see Phil again. Patrons certainly happy to see Phil. You know, he's he's won here before, and and I could go on. So yeah, I mean, I, I think I said this earlier, but people are realizing that uh, this event, this place, this major championship, Augusta National, all of that's bigger than everything else that's been going on in the world of golf right now. Um, and they've all kind of acknowledged that. And hey, listen, if they're if they're friends, they're friends. If they weren't friends, they're still not going to be friends. Uh, and you know what? If you get paired with a guy you don't like, next week, you're not going to see him. It is amazing to me, though, when I look at the, at the pairings, I'm just pulling them up here as we're talking here. When I look at the pairings, it almost looks as though the Masters organizers have put the big name live guys in groups that aren't going to get a lot of attention. It's it, maybe that's a fluke, but it almost looks like some of these guys are being buried. I mean, like everyone who plays the masters is a successful golfer and is a name brand, but there's guys who are bigger stars than other stars. Um, yeah. You I know, don't, Ka- I don't Cameron think Smith is with Hideki Matsuyama and Sanjay Im. I mean, is that a, a, a premier spot? I don't know. Bryson DeChambeau with Francesco Molinari and JT Poston. It, it, it almost looks like they haven't given them any of those big, big, big groups to get much attention. Yeah, nothing is done by accident here at the Masters. So I, I do think that, you know, there was a, a concerted effort made about who who the live guys were going to be paired with. Um, you know, last year, uh, a bunch of the live guys were in the featured groups. This year, they're not. Um, funny enough, somebody posted on, on Twitter yesterday, they noticed that every Canadian is grouped with somebody who plays uh, on the live golf tour. All, all four of them have at least one live golfer in their groups. And, and someone quote tweeted that with a, uh, a photo of the uh, Canadian UN peacekeepers on their, <laughs> on their uniform, which I thought was, uh, which I thought was pretty funny. So um, yeah, I mean, the Canadians are out there. They're going to play with the live guys, probably try to keep the peace. Like I said, and, and life's going to go on. I think to your question specifically. Um, yeah. I, I mean, they, this is probably been done on purpose to eliminate any kind of like unnecessary media amplification of of ongoing drama because you can only imagine if Rory and you know Patrick Reed were oh, paired together or oh. Rory or Phil or whatever it may be right we would have been eating, eating that up but the Masters doesn't want anything to be bigger than the Masters including the groupings I, yeah I'm pretty sure that the other thing that the folks in the green jackets and I don't mean the players I mean the members don't want for the first time, I think probably in history for booing to happen. And I, and I no, honestly, yeah, right. <laughs> I honestly think that if you had paired Rory McElroy and Patrick Reed, which could end up happening by the way, the scores break down. But if you had paired them, you might have had people, I, I really believe this taking sides and maybe heckling or, or doing something that would be not really in the Augusta national yeah. Azalea esque <laughs> kind of spirit. Yes. Yeah. I would, I would agree with that. Your point is well taken though. By the time we get to Saturday and Sunday, uh, it's really out of their control. Yeah, exactly. So, okay. we got a few minutes left here. Who are, is this a bigger deal? Who Who's under more pressure right now? I mean, obviously individual players all want to win, but are the live guys under pressure because they don't play as much and they got to prove that they are still guys who can compete. Are they under pressure to perform or is it the PGA guys 
under more pressure to hold off the live guys to show that we're still the elite? No, I, I don't think it's the PGA Tour guys. I mean, they week in and week out, they've got those elevated events. They've got, um, yeah, I mean, they've got the elevated events. They've got those big tournaments that the live guys aren't aren't in. And and if you win one of those, if you're Scotty Scheffler and at the Players Championship, you got to beat the best field in golf. If you're Scotty Scheffler again at the Waste Management, that was an elevated tournament. You got to beat one of the best fields in golf. So they don't really have anything to prove. Um, whereas the live guys, I think, have everything to prove. Yeah, Cam Smith even admitted it. He was like, um, you know, our our fields are are. are not as deep uh we we are our practice rounds we're kind of elevating and measuring our games against uh some of the guys who play on tour week in and week out we're trying to see what's going on and you know greg norman is is kind of spearheading some of that rah rah us versus them scenario he he said in an interview that um you know if if a live guy wins on sunday all the other 17 live guys who are in this field they're going to come you know join them on the green to to celebrate now cam smith said cam smith was like well i haven't heard that so (laughs) take that with a grain of salt but um you know i think the point the point the point stands the the live guys have something way more to prove than the pga tour guys this week for sure all right so just before i let you go adam um i'm going to give you a second here to really rub it in i want you to tell people (laughs) what the scenario is what is your workspace like in the press center at Augusta National, Just, like really, it's okay. You can do it. I'm asking you. You're not bragging. I'm telling you to do this. Describe the press center and your situation that you've got set up for you. I I have the the comfiest leather work chair in the history of dead cow <laughs> that I am sitting on that leans back in any manner that I see fit. I'm looking out of a. 30 foot high window onto the driving range, the back of the driving range at the nicest golf course in the world. I have two, two screens in front of me, just for me that are attached to any television network along with all of Augusta's uh, data, its leaderboards, et cetera, et cetera. I have all the plugs I need. I have a personal uh, garbage bin. And, um, and if you get hungry and if you get hungry, and if I get hungry, uh, I have to walk about 30 steps to a entirely complimentary uh, grab-and-go snack area or sit-down restaurant, depending on how I choose. It is. Uh, oh, and, and after, and don't forget <laughs> afterwards, after the round is over, when you walk out onto the balcony. Which is where I'm standing right now. Yes. Okay. Um, <laughs> they have the, uh, the basically the beer taps open up. And it's, uh, it's, it's, it is a rough, rough existence. I mean, for the people who, who know you're down there, they can, they can know that you are grinding. You are grinding. Adam is grinding down at Augusta. I am putting in an effort right now. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. Uh, but you know what? It's, uh, you do do excellent work as do the people down there. Listen, I appreciate you taking a few minutes to talk about it today. Enjoy the time down there. Thank you very much. Happy to do it. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.